Yeah, I feel like uh, if I could live into such a list like that, <laughs> I'd be the Buddha. Yeah, I guess that's uh, something that's worth holding on to. Like, what is the relationship between our values, our stated values, and our aims and ideals? And um, what do we fail to live into with our own, you know, way of even conceiving of the world? And uh, yeah, so what do, I want to talk about a couple things today. Uh, I want to ask the question, what is an inclusive spiritual community? And so it's nice to hear you wrestling a bit with that um, already. And I think it is time to wrestle with such a question. And you probably also want to ask, what is a spiritual community for that matter? And I think that's, that's, a, that's a valuable question. And the series that I'm imagining, like kind of moving forward here, as Rod was mentioning, uh, what I'd like to call uh, spirituality in the 21st century, which is kind of broad. <laughs> it's as broad as the word spirituality, so it gives me a lot of liberty to wander into uh, various worlds. Um, but I think it's an important one. Why do we call ourselves a spiritual community? What the heck is that? And why, why do we think um, this particular gathering, this unique gathering that kind of ebbs and flows in terms of who comes here and who's around and, um, and what visitors we have, and why do we think, uh, why do we think we, um, what's the right way of putting it? Our, why do we think our presence might matter in the world? Like for one another, but also just more broadly, what are we doing here in West Michigan? It's a lot easier to close our doors, and it would probably save you a few bucks, you know? I mean, why, why exist in, in, in the culture we exist in, and, and as we relate to other kinds of communities, like we share this building, for example, with a, a fairly traditional church, right, just, you know, 20 feet from us, you know, so why, do, why should we show up each week, and... And that's, I think, something worth wrestling with. Do you know that, you know, I forget the exact date, but some version of this community has been around since the 18, late 1800s. That's a long time. <laughs> and hopefully some iteration of it will continue after you and I. We don't know. It could just be like, hey, we had a good run. And we did it. We did about the best we could, could do. And... But even if, no matter what the future holds, my primary question is, why do we exist right now? And um, what kinds of things can we be calling ourselves uh, to embody and to embrace? And do we have an opportunity to grow up? That's always my universal question. Like when I first started going to therapy, sort of like, why are you here? And I, I said, I want to grow up. You know, and I already had like three kids or something by that time which was an even more obvious, glaring um, mirror of my own immaturity. So, And how might we need to grow up as a community? And I'll just, I, I like the word inclusive, but I just want to say one quick thing about it. When this community decided to call itself an inclusive spiritual community, much of the primary conversation around that word had to do with the inclusion of the LGBTQ community. That was the primary reason for that word. And that was sort of the thing that was floating around in church or church-ish groups. How inclusive are you? They weren't thinking much beyond that phrase. But guess 
how long ago that was, you know? That was like 25 years ago when that was an important conversation. And, it, and that is still a core value of ours about who, what, what sorts of people do we want to not only just be welcome, but also find a sense of belonging, as you were sort of hinting around about. But I want to ask, what else does it mean? And something very interesting is happening right now in, in contemporary American life and in contemporary spiritual circles. And, and it's not obvious that the world is including more and more or that communities are learning to include more and more. It's actually one of those eras where, there, where um, divisions and borders and boundaries and drawing lines in the sand is much more palatable and tasty for people. Am I making sense? So that's in part why I want to return to the, to the question, what do we mean by inclusive spiritual community? And, and it's going to be a little bit of, um, I'm going to return to some Ken Wilber things because I know a few weeks ago when I did a whole thing on Ken Wilber, I just made everyone instantly enlightened. And they understood, they understood everything I was saying. So I want to return to some themes there. Um, let me just read a little, Wilbur, just to mess with you, okay? Here's, here's a quote from the bulletin. I have one major rule. And you might be thinking, that's not allowed to have rules, all right? I have one major rule. Everybody is right. More specifically, everybody, including me, has some important pieces of the truth. And all of those pieces need to be honored, cherished, and included, there's that fancy word, included in a more gracious, spacious, and compassionate embrace. And we all said, yeah, easy, done. Did it last week. Do you think that's true, first of all? Or does some part of you resist that? Like, hmm, what does he mean by that? Everybody is right, because I can think of about 25 people that are dead wrong. All right? So what's he talking about? And here's another problem with what could be called, in the most general sense, integral theory. Increasing consciousness. First of all, you might want to ask, what do we mean by increasing consciousness? And I say, good question. But let's just take it in the most straightforward sense. An expansion of your awareness. Wouldn't you like your awareness to expand? Some people are like, no, I can barely handle the realm I'm already in. That's actually more of the truth. We say, oh, yeah, I'm all about more enlightenment, increased consciousness. Here's the problem with it. It equals increasing complexity. So the more you include, the more complex things get, not the simpler. How do we know that? That's called biological evolution. Did you know that a cell is more complex than an atom? Did you know that scientists right now can predictably, predictably um, tell us where Pluto is going to be in the sky in relation to Earth in 52 years? Easy. Do you know what they can't predict? What your dog is going to do this afternoon. I'm serious. No idea. No idea. You don't know. You have no idea. You could say there are some patterns, but really, you really know in the next moment because it's a more complex being. Now, you could say Pluto is a complex planet, but whatever. Just degrees of complexity. And, and, and a dog has 
is fairly conscious. My dog is personally has reached full enlightenment, but <laughs> others I th- are way down there, okay? All right, so that's kind of one of the things I want to wrestle with in the background. With a word like inclusion, I think we already have you belong. If you are somewhere in a marginalized community, we are trying to open our doors and our hearts and saying you belong here. I think we, we have that. It's a message we've been, we've been hammering at for a while. I want to stretch. What I want to do today is stretch a word like inclusion. What else must we include? Or might we have an opportunity to include? And can we get dangerously close to what Wilbur is talking about, that everyone is right? Okay? Now, I'm going to punish you for five minutes by talking about stages of development and stages of growth. You don't have to remember these but you'll get an A if you remember them, all right? And I want to just describe it in its very sort of drive-through version and then with just a tiny bit more depth here. And, and I'm not even going to, I almost said I wanted to go into footnotes to tell you where I'm getting all this. I'm just going to say, trust me. That's what you should always do. <laughs> I'm not making all this stuff up, all right? But let's just take um, something very simple, when it comes to growth of consciousness and have in the background of what I'm talking about communities. Because the question here is, what's an inclusive spiritual community? I'm not just talking about personal consciousness. I'm talking about the consciousness of a group, okay? The awareness, the general awareness uh, of a group, because you're a group. I mean, if you didn't know that, tough. You're sitting in this room. I've now declared you a group, all right? And that group is, it works like an organism, and, and, it ha- and it has a certain center of gravity, we could say. And we would want to ask, what is the center of gravity of a group like this? So here are some simple frames. Here's one movement. From I, from the I, like personal, the, the ego, we would say, and to use fancy Latin words. Moving from I to we, sense of us, to all of us. Can you feel the progression? I, we, all of us. And I want to go ahead and tell you something. Not every move, everybody moves through all these three expansions. Some, some people, in terms of center of gravity, might m- be much more comfortable in the I realm, which is much more narcissistic and me-centered and my ideas and my feelings, and it's more archaic at its core. Your most archaic needs are I needs. Have I made sense? And somewhere along the lines, you move to the we. You can see this with very small children, like two. When a small child closes their eyes to hide, they think they can't be seen. Do you feel how consciousness expands? No, they actually believe that. It's not like they're pretending. That's that I consciousness. And it's a major, massive, monumental leap to move to we. I and other, and much more so into sort of all of us, the next tier. That is the most simple framing of some of the things I'm talking about. And now I want to give you more detail. So I want to describe for you, and you'll get these almost right away, and they won't be that difficult to explain, but I want to talk about the evolution of um, human communities here briefly. 
because it's directly related to my question of what does it mean to be an inclusive spiritual community. And you'll have to just allow the sort of cursory approach here. So I want to start with um, describing the archaic um, uh, foundation of all human beings. All human beings in the evolution of, of, in human evolution and human consciousness began, and you began, in a more archaic place. Your most primal needs. In a world, if we go back two million years, where um, scarcity and survival were the primary reasons for existence. Like, there's not enough to go around, the world is dangerous, and basic survival um, mechanisms is what ruled the archaic level of consciousness. Are you with me? And it's more narcissistic, just meaning it's more eye-focused. Okay? From archaic, you move to the magical. Okay? Magical is actually an evolution in consciousness. It's a blurring between I and other. There's not so much separation, but magical thinking, sort of magical level of consciousness, is something like this. If I do a special um, incantation, um, dance, um, form, move my body in a certain way, it causes the world to be different or change in some way. Feel the kind of magical thinking involved there? Are you with me? It is actually a monumental leap in evolution from archaic consciousness. It's magical thinking. And you think, well, I, there's no way I have any magical thinking, except you probably do. You know, you probably bought a lottery ticket, and at some point in your life, that's magical thinking, right? And, and if you've, I'm not so much into baseball, but baseball's notorious for all these little magical rituals and beads and things like that. There's no, what we would call scientific evidence for any of that. It's a kind of consciousness. You engage in it from time to time, and very small children engage in it all the time. Okay? Next sort of stage, I told you I'm going to go kind of fast here, is mythic literal. Myth, mythic slash literal. And this is a, a major shift away from magical thinking. Instead of, if I do something, the world changes, then there's some um, distance between me and the other, and I say, no, it's not actually I'm changing the world, it's the gods or the forces or the goddesses or Yahweh or whoever that's in charge of the universe, and my orientation toward that deity or that being is, uh, is the only way change can take place. Now, you still might engage in little rituals and rites and things like that, but it's not so directly you're changing the world, you're asking the deity to change the world. Have I made sense? And this is, you know, trans cultural, global phenomenon, the mythic, literal realm emerges, and that's when you first get what we would think of as organized religions, all right? And they all told myths and stories, and they're all taken more or less literally, although we might use, you have to say literally in quotes because that's a kind of a modern idea anyway, but you're familiar with the mythic literal. Now, here are examples of it. The mythic literal, when you're in this mode of consciousness, believes that the stories literally happen just the way they happen and just the way the tribe has 
interprets them and understands them, and it creates a world in which my tribe has the right stories and rituals and rites and so forth, and your tribe does not. It's not very open to... The Romans got about as close, but that's already sort of a development that's happening there, meaning they said, okay, we acknowledge there can be multiple gods out there, and you're from a different area, and we're going to include you in there. Except if you didn't bow down to the emperor, then they killed you. So that was a little caveat to their inclusivity. But anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked here. You're with me with the mythic literal. Now, if you say, for example, Jonah was not literally swallowed by a fish and lived down there in the belly of a fish like Pinocchio's dad, then you're out, okay? No, seriously, you're out because you're not playing by the sort of mythic literal nature and it's a, it's a mode of consciousness, okay? Now, next one, are you with me so far? We've gone magic, no, archaic magic, mythic to the rational. And finally, you're like, oh, finally, rational. We can breathe again, all right? Now, rational is not exactly what it sounds like, sort of like philosophers scratching their beard and this kind of thing. It's the capacity to take a third-person perspective, not just a second-person perspective, to some measure of objectivity to say, is there, we might use words like evidence, um, data, um, that is, that we can objectively observe that might shape the way I see the world, and might come to influence the way I see the world, that's that third-person perspective, backing up out of the magic mythic, which is what the Renaissance was. You know, the, by the way, the most important thing that, that the Renaissance did in terms of the move, the rational, it ta- is to take education out of the realm of the church. They said, we'll pluck it out of there, and now there are, are higher-order principles for which to, to us to observe the world, and it expressly over time, especially with the Enlightenment, then denied the mythic, um, literal nature of religion. And that's like Thomas Jefferson going through and cutting out all the miracles in the Bible, saying now we have what actually happened. Have it made sense? That's that rational mode. And you can even think, wait, where am I in this? Well, I don't know. That's a complex question, actually. But you certainly know what I'm talking about with rational. Now, you might wonder with things like, um, oh, the, the huge debate between religion and science is embedded right here between mythic literal and the rational. All right? People like Dawkins and who are the other new atheists? Harris. And what they're actually doing is critiquing the mythic literal mode of consciousness from a rational point of view. That's really all that's happening. And then the two sides are fighting. And da, 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 da. Okay? All right, next mode. You ready? We're almost done, and then we'll, be, we'll all reach Satori together. Okay? Now, we're moving up the spiral here. And so, beyond rational was what we would call pluralistic. It can be called multiculturalism. You can call it postmodernism if you want. But I think pluralism is probably the best reason for it, and it is the most new of any of the modes of consciousness. Don't think for any any moment in time, if you go back 20,000 years and you're sitting there in a cave and that you, if you wanted to, could access uh, 
Well, there might be some question about that because there are states of consciousness. I'm just going to back off that whole statement. Okay? But I'm saying, by and large, from a cultural point of view, you didn't have the option of being rational or pluralistic. It's like when people say, well, I don't take the uh, book of Genesis literally because there's not scientific data in there. Also, don't forget, science hadn't been invented, <laughs> lest, lest you forget. So, all right. So, next mode is pluralistic, and it is the capacity to take a fourth-person perspective. All right. Third-person perspective is the rational objective. Fourth person comes in and says, yes, but we have a problem. Just because I'm rationally looking at the facts, the one who's rationally looking at the facts has his or her own perspective. And it's colored by their perspective. Do you hear what I'm talking about? That's the pluralistic world. That's the emergence of, of a brand new mode of consciousness. And actually, if I'm really honest, C3, as far as I can tell, is coming up out of that world just a little bit. If we had to choose, it's coming up out of that world. It's multicultural. It values a variety of perspectives. It likes to say things like no one has the corner on the truth. So even hearing Ken Wilber saying um, everything is right, we might start wondering, wait a minute, I don't do I actually believe that? It starts to poke around in that. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's, what's, it's one of the three factors that's shaping our culture right now. I think you have the mythic literal still very much alive. You have the rational still very much alive. And you have the pluralistic world. And they're a little bit in a culture war right now. So it tends to be green and pluralistic and suspicious of hierarchy. And its view of the world is all of us. Um, it tends to say all perspectives are welcome, but certain ones no. Um, it will deny, by the way, previous stages as being wrong. If you really pin them to the wall, they'll say, yeah, we value other perspectives, but those early ones just had it wrong. Just had it wrong. They didn't have enough information, not enough data. Um, so it's, it kind of, it can, um, its capacity to be inclusive is limited. I'll hear, hear, hear me out, and I'll just pick on one thing about it and then just move on. Um, one of the, the, the central tenets of uh, this plural, pluralistic mode of consciousness is that there are no universals. Okay? Just think about it. There are no universal truths. How's that? How's that land with you? There are no universal truths. I mean, really, who am I to say? If I were to go and visit a Navajo medicine woman, who am I to say that what she has to say is uh, any different than what I have to say? Do you get what I'm saying at? We don't want to overlay on the, on the universe universal truths. It makes us uncomfortable. That's really right at the very center of a pluralistic multicultural worldview. What's the problem with that? That's a universal claim. That's the problem with it. There are no universals is a universal claim, which then you impose on the world the very thing that multiculturalism doesn't want to do. You don't want to impose your worldview, your colonial ideas, and so forth. Imposes there are no universals on the world. So it's, it, it, that's a kind of fallacy, but it collapses in on itself. In other words, it has its limitations, just like rational has its limitations, and the mythic literal, and the archaic, and the magic all have limitations. All right, now I'm almost done. Which brings us to the doorstep of something that at least Ken Wilber would say is about 3 to 5% of the 
global population at best. And that is more integral. It's second-tier consciousness. That integral thinking is itself an embodiment of inclusivity. It says everybody's right, at least a little bit. It doesn't mean everything everybody always says is right. It just means that every single um, manifestation of consciousness or growth in consciousness has something right about their values that have to be included for us to grow up. Have to be included. So it says things like, the more traditional, mythic, literal neighbor who goes to church somewhere and believes Jonah lived in the belly of the fish, somewhere in there is something that's absolutely true and valuable and has to be included for uh, a more inclusive world. Do you feel how that's a little different? And he says the big difference between first-tier and second-tier consciousness is the capacity to include. Because everything else is based on exclusion. Mythic rejects magical. Rational rejects mythic. I'm going to get lost. Uh, <laughs> pluralistic rejects both rational and mythic. And only integral begins to say, hey, let's pick up the pieces here. So why am I saying all this? Because my opinion is, whatever C3 is up to in the world, I hope it's the kind of community that can worry about and think about and wonder about the future evolution of consciousness and not to just to double down in one particular pluralistic area. In other words, can C3 be the kind of place that encourages integral thinking, integral consciousness, what needs to be included, who's right? And think about how challenging that is. What if you had to give a speech in front of a thousand people arguing for what is good and right about conservatism? Who would want to do that? Okay, you see how we might have some opportunities to grow. Now that doesn't mean, it's not the same thing, by the way, as saying everything everybody says is right. That's absurd. You know, because you could say the opposite is true. He says, everybody is right, but you could also say everybody's also a little bit wrong. <laughs> and that takes a certain kind of discernment. All right, so, all right. I know it's a, a bit heady what I was up to this morning, so I don't apologize for that. <laughs> what do I want to say here? As I think about the future of C3, I would like to say it's not just about stating how we are different than our neighbors although that can be important. You are different than your neighbors. But it's not just about stating differences, because that's what the mythic literal loves to do. Or even celebrating our enlightenment. Look how enlightened we are. We take science seriously. Look how righteous we are. Okay? In my view, the world needs us to keep waking up. That's more of an interior exercise. And keep growing up. That's more of the external communal dimension into more integral ways of being. Part of why I want to talk about spirituality in the 21st century is to wonder about, are there practices, rites, rituals, ways of being, ways of thinking that are more in tune with evolution, with the evolution of consciousness? In other words, are harmonizing with more integral ways of being. Is it possible for us, really, this would be a brand new kind of community in the world 
to say everyone is at least a little bit right and we're looking for ways of integration and connection. You feel how rad? You know what's more fun? Those people are wrong and they should burn in hell. That's a lot of fun. It is. No, I'm serious. Like, it's exciting and we get to have an enemy and, and that's most of the world. That's most of the spiritual communities in the world. You know, fundamentalism is on the rise and that's, a, that's an obsession with the mythic literal. Okay. So anyway, could we be the kind of place that says everybody is right and also a little bit wrong? And can we celebrate and include truth wherever it's true, wherever we find it? And in doing so, it encourages a kind of growth. And the best way to think about that is to think about the truths of other worldview as being values, not statements. Like, for example, if you think about a traditional worldview, it's much more important to say, what values here are important? And to begin to find ways to fold those in instead of what statements are true or false. Do you feel the, the slight difference here? And we have an interesting opportunity because we claim to be a values-based community. So we're, we need to have conversations as what is the relationship between the values that we espouse and hold and the values that are out there in the world. When they're in conflict, we can be honest about that. We have different values or they're in conflict, but that doesn't mean we have to go around searching for an enemy to burn in hell. Make sense? So those are some of the things I'm wondering. Now, we're going to have an annual meeting, and um, I want to make a kind of statement before we hear some music and sort of transition to that, that meeting, and I, want, I really want to encourage you to be there because I think a lot of important things are happening now and will be happening this year in the life of this uh, community. So, okay, one of the present challenges we have, in case you haven't heard, is sharing space with our neighbors here, with Life Church. So, just a tiny bit of housekeeping here. And as you know, they rent that building across the street, but the city has is kicking them out. They're selling that building, it's kicking them out, and they're looking for a more, down the road, they're looking for a more permanent place to be. And right now, this is where they're hoping to be. That means we're in negotiation about how can we share this building. And it's going to get more challenging because all of their kids are also going to want to come over here. And they also are interested in renting this room. So we can either treat this as our enemy is now at our doorstep. <laughs> or we can say, how are we going to work this out? How are we going to see the value of sharing a community space, that's what this is, and how are we going to work it out? And I'm mentioning that because tomorrow we have a big meeting with them and with the city manager to try to figure out. And we're going to have to have some flexibility as they're going to have to have some flexibility. I don't know how it's going to work out. We're going to have to think about service times again. We're going to have to think about, is this even the best time for us to be meeting? What if we met at a different time? All that stuff in terms of creativity is on the table. It's going to take a little creative effort on our part. And we also have in the back of our mind, because of all this stuff, is this going to be the best place for us long term? Is it time to start branching out? Should we be looking at other kinds of places? I want to encourage you in hearing this news to think about this as an opportunity for our own creative evolution and our own growth. 
and our own relationship with the city. So that's kind of where things stand. You can ask me more questions in the annual meeting if you want, but I wanted to do a little housekeeping about what needs to happen in the next couple days for us to figure out um, where we're going to actually be meeting. And here's something I know. We've been around since like the 1800s, like I said before, and also in more recent times um, with COVID, have, it's, it's obvious to us that our community has a tremendous amount of flexibility and a capacity to survive through various challenges and opportunities. So that's not going anywhere. No matter how tomorrow goes or how we might try to rework things in the short term, I mean, that's just part of the community life, and I can't imagine it's going to affect our, um, the overall importance of who we are. Have I made sense? All right. I'm going to read with Ken, uh, end with the Wilbur thing, and then, then I'm done. I have one major rule. Everybody is right, except people I don't like. Everybody is right. More specifically, everybody, including me, has some important pieces of truth. And all those pieces need to be honored, cherished, and included in a more gracious, spacious, compassionate embrace. Thanks for listening.